If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 18 this morning. John chapter 18, we will uh, be in John 18, then in John 21, and then we will reference the occurrences in John 19 and 20. Next week, we will begin a series that will move us into the spring and then into the summer entitled Real Faith That Meets Real Life as we look through the epistle of James and so as we listen to the Holy Spirit-inspired word from the half-brother of Jesus in James' epistle, that's where we will be, and that's where we'll be for the months to come. But I wanted us to think carefully this morning, post-Easter, and some of the occurrences that occur prior to his ascension into heaven. And I want us to ask and to answer with great clarity this morning, does failure have to be final? Does your failure have to be final? Does your mistake, does the, the worst moment of your life, does the uh, sinful decision, selfish decision, does that have to define you? Or is there forgiveness even in the midst of our failures? Does failure have to define you? Do you know Steve Bartman? Do you know that name, Steve Bartman, October the 4th, 2003, Steve Bartman, who was a lifelong Chicago Cubs fan, found himself as a uh, standing in the, the seats watching the National League Championship Series Game 6. The Cubs, his beloved Cubs, were winning that series 3-2. to two. They were five outs away from going at that time to their first World Series appearance since 1945. They were playing the Marlins. There was a batter up to plate that hit kind of a lazy foul ball that begins to drift into the foul territory there at left field. Moises Alou begins to get under the ball. It begins to drift closer to the stands there as Bartman, this Cubs fan, reaches out and obstructs Moises Alou from catching the ball. It so happened that as they were five outs away from winning that game, going back to the World Series, it happens to be that the Marlins rallied to tie up the series, and the Marlins won the series in that Game 7, again uh, bringing to attention the long-suffering Chicago Cubs. Steve Bartman, that night, had to be escorted out of Wrigley Field with a police escort, lest he be harmed by the fury of the Chicago Cubs fans. His address and his phone number was immediately posted to the internet. He had to have uh, around-the-clock protective services to keep him away from uh, being harmed. He became the fodder for late-night jokes from Letterman and Leno. If you know the story of Bartman, he, he leaves his home. He leaves his job. Uh, even now, he is still in seclusion, even after the Cubs have won their first World Series since 1908. You cannot, will, nor will you hear from, from Bartman, it seems. He's refused all interviews. There have been all types of gestures to get him to throw out the first pitch back in Chicago, saying all is forgiven, but Bartman's failure for him in many ways has finalized his life. And in the eyes of many people, that failure, that mistake became a final picture of who he was. Does your failure have to be final? One of the things that I want us to discover in Scripture today is that one of the greatest followers of Jesus Christ committed his greatest act 
of unfaithfulness. And what happens when a follower of Christ meets failure? What wins forgiveness or failure? John chapter 18, starting in verse 15, we read, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Then we move to verse 25 of John chapter 18. Now Simon Peter was standing, warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Second opportunity. He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. This is not just an impulsive mistake. This is a failure of grand proportions. The rooster crows and it's a reminder to us of Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 31, where Jesus is with his disciples. And they're celebrating the Passover meal. And he says to his disciples, One of you will betray me. And zealous Peter, speak first, think later, Peter said, If, if every one of these men fall away from you, if every one of these men fail you, I will not. And Jesus said this very night, before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. Peter says, I will never deny you. And at the end of the chapter in John chapter 18, we have him emphatically in the strongest language possible saying, I don't know this guy. Three times he has the opportunity. And three times he says, I don't know him. I don't know him. I do not know him. Does Peter's failure become final? We know the story of Good Friday. We know that as Peter fails Jesus, there will be other disciples that run away. Jesus is hung upon a cruel, coarse Roman cross, but Friday isn't the last day where the silence of Saturday is replaced by the bright hope and the crescendo of the angelic choir that welcomes the resurrected Christ into his earthly existence here. And he appears, and he appears to Mary Magdalene. We talked about that last week. He appears to the disciples. He appears to even a doubting Thomas. A Thomas who would say, I'm not going to believe that he's actually walking among us unless I can see his nail-scarred hands, unless I can touch him in his side. Jesus appears to Doubting Thomas and said, here's my hands, here are the nail-scarred wrists, touch them, Thomas. Here's my side, is this enough? He looks at Thomas and he says, do not disbelieve, but believe, welcoming all of us as Thomas that have doubts, to to see the evidence of his resurrection. But then he looks at Thomas and he says to the disciples and he says to us, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We are those who have not touched but yet believe. 
We are those who not touch, but we have been touched by the resurrection of Christ. And we believe all of this happened, uh, much that occurs with the disciples. And then we have a very bodily description of the disciples' next step. And that is just solely, we've got to eat. We're hungry. We're hungry. And so Peter leads them on this fishing expedition. And we pick up the story in John chapter 21, starting in verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, in verse 6 of John chapter 21, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, this is probably John, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was, was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea, abandons all decorum, all propriety. He sees the Lord. He throws himself into the sea to get to Jesus. Verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. The fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. Just if you are counting at home, there are 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. They're fragrant flashbacks that all of us have. Scientists uh, tell us that one aspect of our sensory capacity is to be able to remember smells for a long period of our life. You know this. I mean, I don't have to give you a lot of examples of this. Anytime I smell fried chicken, I go back to being five years old and in this two-bedroom home of my grandmother in Yezu City, Mississippi. She had this large cast-iron skillet. She used to fry chicken in it, and I can just smell those smells. Got some work being done on my vehicle this past week and I had to rent a vehicle and I, I hopped in that vehicle and the first thing that I smelled was, was cigarette smoke in the vehicle. And it brought me back when I was four and five and six years old. My mom's parents would take us on these long, they seemed so long, just like hours and hours to, as we would visit them for a week and both of them would smoke and I'd be in the back. <clears throat> you know, just coughing. Uh, please, Nana, roll down the window, please. And it just brings me back. Those smells bring back these kind of fragrant flashbacks. And there's Peter. He comes ashore. And the first thing that he smells is that charcoal fire. In John chapter 18... Peter warms himself around a charcoal fire. 
And he says three times, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And that smell of the charcoal fire is that place of his greatest failure. And then in John chapter 21, when Jesus meets him, and this is going to be a time of forgiveness and restoration, Jesus makes a charcoal fire. And that sensory memory that Peter has of his greatest failure, Jesus is saying, your greatest failure is not final. I'm going to redeem even that smell. He hands him a piece of bread, hands him a piece of fish that they have caught. And then he does something that's unique. He he moves from just the disciples to a personal conversation where he's going to ask Peter three questions. We read of it in John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Then in verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Verses 15 through 19, we have this back and forth conversation between Jesus and Simon Peter. You don't see this in the English translation, whether it's the ESV or the NIV, but there are three different words in the original language of the New Testament that get translated love. And maybe you've heard sermons or Sunday school lessons that spend a good bit of time talking about the different words for love that Jesus uses and Peter uses. So if you're looking at the text, it, Jesus is saying, do you agape me? This is sort of that, un, uh, the way it gets preached is sort of this is, do you unconditionally love me? And then Peter responds all three times with phileo, uh, Philadelphia, brotherly love. And so there's a lot of sermonic ground that's been plowed around Jesus asking agape, Peter saying phileo. He comes to the end and Jesus uses the same word. Peter has and is the meaning of this passage found in the different words and while that's been some familiar terrain it really isn't helpful terrain because the bible really doesn't go in that direction see this is the thing about the new testament that those words get interchanged agape and phileo and actually in the old testament translation or the, uh, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, which is called the Septuagint, they use those words interchangeably. So we're trying to make these distinctions in these words of eros and phileo and agape, but they use them interchangeably. Then you get out of the New Testament, you get out of the Old Testament translation into Greek, and what do you find? You find these words used interchangeably. So it doesn't seem... That while it's tempting to say that Jesus is saying, do you love me with everything? And Peter just can just say, I just, I love you in this kindness way. I love you in this brotherly way. But that's really not what's going on here. The meaning is found not in the syntax of these words, but the meaning is found in the repetition. Three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times he is counteracting the three times in John chapter 18 while Peter was around a charcoal fire where he said, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And Jesus brings him back to that moment and he is going to resurrect those three questions 
And he is going to allow this moment to be a time where failure doesn't have the final word. And with each one of these opportunities here, he commissions him. He says, do you love me? Well, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then tend my sheep. Do you love me? Then feed my lambs. Three times he denies Jesus. Three times he's asked to give allegiance to Jesus. Three times he denies Jesus. Three times he is commissioned by Jesus to be the greatest proclaimer prior to the Apostle Paul of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here we have a preview right prior to Jesus ascending into heaven. And the next time that we come in contact with Peter, what we discover in in, uh, Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles is Jesus is ascended into heaven. And we have at Pentecost this opportunity for someone to stand up and to proclaim what has happened. And you know who does it? This Peter. This Peter who three times denied Jesus. This Peter, whose failure wasn't final, because when you understand that in Christ there is always forgiveness, then you understand that no matter your failure, no matter your sin, no matter your selfish moment, no matter the scandal, that forgiveness does not have the last word in your life. That if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness, that if you would confess your sin, whatever that sin is, whether it's the sin of Peter or your sin of gluttony or gossip or lying, whatever that sin might be, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Many of you saw weeks ago Billy Graham's memorial service, one of the most powerful moments of that service is when his daughter Ruth stood up to speak and she told a personal story of her life and the forgiveness that she found in her earthly father. Ruth comes to this point in her life where she goes through a messy divorce. She, in her own words, enters into a relationship really quickly after the divorce. So much so that family members say to her, Ruth, you might want to slow down. Her dad, Billy Graham, her mom say, honey, you might want to slow down. But she, in her own words, uh, just runs headlong into this relationship in the midst of sin, in the midst of selfishness. And she marries this person and she says that she immediately knew that she made a horrendous mistake. Days turn into weeks and she abandons her marriage She leaves, she gets into her vehicle, and she has two days to go home to her mom and dad's house in North Carolina. She tells the story that she's going up the mountain, and there's this windy road, and she comes across a bend, and she makes her way up the driveway. And these are her own words at her father's funeral. My father was standing there waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me, and he said, welcome home. There was no shame. There was no blame. There was no condemnation. There was no, I told you so. There was no, what were you thinking? There was no, how could you think that you could come home? There was no, you've embarrassed me. There was just unconditional love. My father was not God. But he showed me what God was like that day. That when we come to God with our sin, with our brokenness, 
with our failure, with our pain, with our hurts, with our mistakes, with our mishaps, with the worst moments of our life that God looks at us, he welcomes us, and he says, welcome home. In Christ, there is always forgiveness. What part of your life do you feel that the blood of Jesus Christ does not flow to cover? What aspect of of that point when you were in high school or in college or early in your marriage or 30 years into your marriage, do you feel he has forgiven everything, but this place is out of bounds of his forgiveness? I will not forgive myself. He will not forgive me. And you stand in judgment saying that his blood is not sufficient for that moment. In Christ, If you go to him in repentance, asking for forgiveness, there is always forgiveness. But more than that, in Christ, forgiveness is a freeway of opportunity, church. I want you to see this in this passage. I want you to see this in the ministry of Jesus because Peter's forgiveness is not an end, but rather it's a means. Uh, Peter's forgiveness is not an end, but it is a catalyst that propels him forward in obedience. Three times he hears from Jesus, not only do you love me, the question, but he hears as he says, I love you. I love you. You know everything. You know I love you. And each time he hears after Jesus asks the question, then go feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. So the forgiveness of Jesus is a catalyst for obedience in response to Jesus. What he has shown us in his love upon the cross and in the resurrection is the grounds by which we serve him. Not trying to earn his embrace, but rather because we have been embraced. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for you and for me. So because he has shown us his love, because he has shown us his grace, this is the free way of opportunity that God desires to redeem our mistakes, our miscues, our scandals, our sin, our selfish moments, all of that. He works all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And all things includes your failures and my failures. You know this. I mean, Jesus, one of the most memorable stories in all of John's gospel is this woman that is called in adultery. She's brought in the midst of sin and shame. She's cast before the religious leaders. They pick up their stones to throw them at this woman. Jesus said, hey, hey, you guys in the crowd that don't have sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And the text tells us that from the oldest to the youngest, they, they, they cast down their stones because they understand the wisdom of what Jesus said, that they, that they all know sin. And then I, I imagine Jesus coming to this woman, as the text tells us he comes, but I just imagine him kneeling in front of her and says to her, where are your accusers? She looks around and all she sees are the backs of these men whose faces just moments before had to grimace upon them as their hands were clenched upon the rocks that were going to be the ultimately uh, the, the point of her execution. She sees the backs of these men as they're walking away and he says to them, where are your accusers? I don't accuse you either. But it doesn't stop there. Then he says... Go and sin no more. And I want you to hear this, church, because Christ desires. 
to redeem every aspect of your life. And you need to know this morning that some of the most fertile soul that actually is the birth of fruitful ministry is your greatest point of failure. That, that the weakest moments of your life, the pain, the hurt, the sorrow, the disappointment that you've done to one or it has been done to you, God desires in this unique way to allow your weakness to be glorified, not your weakness, but rather your weakness to be this moment that magnifies his greatness. There's some of us in this room that need to be reminded that ultimately he is looking for people who are willing to say, I have been forgiven greatly. Some of you might know that in 1935 in Akron, Ohio, there were two men that from all public appearances, if you were to have walked into the uh, little restaurant that they were meeting in, you'd have thought, boy, these are the pictures of community here, a stockbroker by the name of Bill, a surgeon by the name of Bob. They met together in Akron, Ohio, 1935, and they met in the midst of their brokenness, brokenness that many in their family knew about, but many people in their career life did not know about because both of them had a lifelong struggle as adults with alcoholism. And out of that meeting, out of that pain, out of that failure came the opportunity to help, which is what we know as AA. It's what we know as Alcoholics Anonymous. It wasn't a place where they said, hey, we've got it all together. So we're going to franchise our togetherness. We're going to franchise our strength. But it was rather meeting God in their moment of pain and weakness. God redeemed that. And out of that, as wounded healers, God has used that ministry to heal many that have struggled with the disease of addiction, the disease of alcoholism. I remember in a previous church that I served in, that one of the greatest members that had a ministry to broken families, individuals that were going through some of the most difficult things that a couple could go through, oftentimes uh, on the way to an affair or after affair has been brought to light, I would oftentimes, if not always, say, hey, can I let you talk to somebody? Because 30 years prior to me coming to be the pastor of that church, there was an individual who was a member of that church that went through a horrendous failure. And in the midst of his failure, sitting to sign the divorce papers, God got a hold of not only him, but got a hold of his wife. And in the midst of hurt and pain and sorrow, that became fertile soil for a fruitful ministry to couples who would walk a path that they had once walked. And it wasn't tied together with this neat bow. There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of trust. And there was a lot of things in that. But God used that moment of weakness and indiscretion. And he used it as a point of healing for those that he came in contact with. What about you? It's not just your failure. But you need to hear that God doesn't waste your wounds. He doesn't waste your wounds. If he could take the greatest atrocity that was ever committed in human history, that was the death of the Holy One, his son, Jesus Christ. If he could, if he could take 
the betrayal of the high priest Caiaphas, if he could take the betrayal of Pontius Pilate and he could redeem that, and if he could take Good Friday, the death of his son, and then bring about Resurrection Sunday, who is to say that he can't bring about that kind of resurrection in your life? Who is to say that he's not looking for people who have been wounded to become wounded healers? It is by his stripes that we are healed, and it is by those wounds in our life, those places of difficulty, those places where God met us in the midst of our sorrow, met us in the midst of our disappointment, that he comes and he desires to use for his glory. What about your life? What aspect of your life have you quarantined away from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you that in Christ there is always forgiveness. And I am here to tell you that in Christ forgiveness is a freeway of opportunity. Will you follow him to the hurting people in your family, in your workplace, in this church, and in the community that you lived in and live in? And will you allow him to do an amazing work in and through your wounds. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word that speaks to our hearts. And we pray that even now, even now, Lord Jesus, we'd be reminded that in you there's always forgiveness. And in you, that forgiveness is a free way of opportunity for ministry May we see those places in our life that you have redeemed, those scars that you are in the process of healing. And may we see that your sovereign hand is working all things together for your good and for your glory. May we stand on that promise that our failures do not, in and through your forgiveness, have to be final. It's in your name we pray, the forgiving name of Christ Jesus. Amen.